Today I have a very special guest. Her name is Maddie and she's a Wiradjuri woman, which is one of the First Nations people of Australia. Several years ago, she started a not-for-profit organization named Murian, which has the focus of combining marine biology with the traditional knowledge of the land. In this episode, we get the chance to learn a bit more about Australia and how the original custodians of the land actually protected and worked to protect the biodiversity of this beautiful country. We talk about totems, we talk about the gaps in traditional knowledge and marine science and how important it is to bridge it and to strengthen these communities all across the country. One of the coolest things I found out in this episode is how the different tribes communicated with each other to show what animals or what fish had been eaten in a particular area to make sure that it didn't become overfished, so stay to check that out. I have learned so much from this inspirational woman and I hope you guys appreciate this and I think it is such an important thing to often look to the people who lived in these parts of the world to see how we can best protect our oceans and our earth. As you guys know, this podcast is completely free, so it would mean the world to me if you could help support me in continuing this work. So if you'd like, you can become a Patreon or donate on the website, or you can join the tribe by getting yourself a Plastic is the Killer t-shirt and share some of that plastic-free living, that ocean-loving attitude with the world. Also, sharing, liking, all of that will help a lot as well. If you tag me on Instagram, Ocean Pancake, I will reshare it, and I love hearing what you guys think of the episode or what other guests you would like to have on and all of that stuff. Make sure to join the Facebook group as well, Ocean Pancake, because that's where we all get together, all the ocean lovers, and chat about the episodes and chat about solutions and eco-friendly tips and tricks on how to live a cleaner and greener life. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean. Whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution, if the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. of the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today is a very special episode because I am joined by Maddie, who's a Wiradjuri woman and the founder of Murian. Welcome, Maddie. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you on board. Uh, as you know, I live in Australia, so it's fantastic to have someone um, here who's actually a real Australian. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can use that terminology, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm sure you're going to teach us all about um, proper terminology and um, all of that. So let's just dive into this week's episode. Could you, to start off with, tell me about Murian and what is this fantastic project that you have created? So I'll backtrack to about a year ago. 
when I just finished up my undergrad and I studied marine biology. I was kind of at a point in my life where I wasn't sure if I wanted to go do a master of research or try and get full-time work. At that point, I'd only applied for one job and funnily enough, I actually got it. So I didn't end up doing a master of research, but I was planning on looking at the effect of like turtle population decline up north as a couple of my friends were like Torres Strait Islander or from North Queensland and some of their totems were turtles. So I thought, how's that going to impact culture? And that's something I'd really like to investigate. So I was speaking to one of the aunties at uni and mentioned that I'd love to start a nonprofit or like an organization kind of looking at tying in culture and science because I really noticed there was a lack of the two in the scientific field and I'd read a few papers where they spoke about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with the wrong language and they hadn't been reviewed so I thought there was a real gap in that and considering the job that I was going into wasn't quite uh, marine biology based I thought this would be a nice passion project to have on the side and like start funding eventually projects and research that look into integrating cultural, traditional cultural knowledge and science. So that's kind of like how I started Murian. And I picked the word Murian because it's a Wiradjuri word and it's one of our words for sea. And since the sea is kind of that part of the ocean that we use, um, I figured that fit in well. And it was one of the easier words to pronounce. <laughs> so it's just one of the words. What are some of the other ones? I honestly don't know off the top of my head, but um, Uncle Stan Grant has released a Wiradjuri dictionary, which does have most of the words in there. So there's like, I think maybe one other one, and I think it starts with a G, but it's hard to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I already have some trouble pronouncing <laughs> Wiradjuri <laughs> and some of the other other names. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of traditional language is hard to like learn because we're so used to speaking English and English is Latin based. Yeah. So it's like hard. Yeah, it is. English is not my first language, so I definitely struggled with going to learn English because I learned Cyrillic alphabet first. So that was a whole separate transition as well. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So you know like the language barriers. Yeah, definitely can be familiar with the language barriers and some cultural barriers as well, um, but slightly different. <laughs> um, so you're a Wiradjuri woman. Where um, are the people of Wiradjuri from in terms of geographically in Australia? So if you look at like the Aboriginal language group map, Wiradjuri people are in New South Wales and it's kind of like central west um we're bordered by the three rivers the Lachlan the Macquarie and the Murrumbidgee um where my family's from is we're from a town called Parks which is kind of like near Dubbo ish mm -hmm. um just so people are aware um so there's a lot of like Wiradjuri people living in Sydney because it's such a big area so there's a lot of Wiradjuri people um but we're from lots of different places on like land, if that makes sense. So like I've got a friend who's from 
like Cara and he's Rodri. And then I've got someone I know from Wellington and she's Rodri. So although we're all from the same mob, we might not actually even be related. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, because it's so big. Would be, <laughs> and <laughs> so with Murian that you started this, um, your big goal was to integrate your traditional cultural knowledge and the traditional cultural knowledge of your ancestors with kind of the modern scientific um, whatever is happening in those fields. Um, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the differences and similarities you have found in these two areas? So. For starters, like a lot of things in science, you require a lot of like repetition and stuff for the accuracy. Um, and that's well documented. So that's documented usually through like papers and written down. Whereas in culture, there is a lot of that repetition because that's kind of how you learn. But instead of having it written down, it's passed orally. Um, so one of the other similarities, well, I guess it's like a, yeah, I guess it's a similarity, would be cultural knowledge is very, I want to say sensitive, but that's not quite the right term. Um, it's not always shared with other people. So even like elders or people from another mob aren't really going to share their cultural knowledge with me. You kind of have to earn it in a way. And I find a lot of research is similar in that way because you have to like pay for journals and pay for subscriptions and sort of stuff so you have to kind of unlock that knowledge if that kind of makes sense um so it's not always readily available um I, I and really like that <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting simile considering the last podcast episode i just recorded was with a marine biologist and she was telling me how difficult science is to access and because um, you have to pay and there's so much jargon in there um, that it's almost like this little like elite group and you need to be welcomed in um, to actually get the knowledge from there. Yeah, it's almost a similar way. Um, and that's kind of, it can be a bit detrimental in Aboriginal culture because people aren't always willing to share. Um, so it makes it harder to preserve it because it's all oral, mm -hmm. which... Yeah, like, um, for example, there's some, like, song lines and rock art in Sydney that, with my job, people have told us about, but they're not willing to actually tell us where it is because they are worried that non-Indigenous people are going to come in and take it away. Yeah. So there's some barriers and that's a crossover between the two. Um, and then, like other similarities would actually be that the end goal is conservation and is protecting species and trying to keep things alive and you know the intention is there like that is the same so sometimes um merging the two because of like the intention works well however because science and stuff like you've said uses different jargon and can be quite intimidating for people that are from different backgrounds and don't quite understand, you know, like what goes into a research paper. Um, there can be some barriers like that. And a lot of times people will be like, oh, I don't want to 
share things with scientists or I don't consider myself from a science background or I have an understanding. So I'm not willing to be a part of it. So that creates a little bit of not tension, but yeah, it makes it a bit hard. Yeah, it is difficult. And um, I feel like there's more people realizing this now and the other podcast episode I just mentioned was with the founder of Marine Diaries, which is a really um, great initiative, which is, to bring scientists more into communication with the general public. So to make science more easily accessible and understood and just, especially in, in kind of the atmosphere that we're living in today where climate change and all these environmental disasters are finally getting to the forth, forefront of the media and of people's minds, um, that we need that knowledge and information out there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I follow them on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're great. I, I really love it. You should contact them. They're actually, they, um, they're always looking for people to uh, share their stories and their knowledge, um, anything to do with the marine, marine world. So I'm sure you'd have an interesting perspective. Yeah, I should definitely do that. Um, anyway, back, <laughs> back to <laughs> marine and um, kind of your marine biology uh, background. So what kind of work are you doing right now in terms of um, joining the marine conservation and um, culture? So, because we've only really been around for a, a year at most, mm-hmm. um, I'm using my social media as a platform to kind of connect the two. Um, and we're hosting a couple beach cleanups. So I've got one coming up on this Saturday, actually. So what I do at the beginning of each cleanup is I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we stand on and kind of try my best to explain like how they lived around the area um, and that we're preserving the land that they would have kept pristine Um, and kind of just trying to educate the people that come to the cleanups a little bit because I find you don't want to overwhelm people with too much cultural information because it's just going to go over their head and they're not going to care so the best tactic that I'm planning like I'm doing is because everyone's on that whole bandwagon of conservation stop using single-use plastics pro-environment so getting on board with that bring people's attention in and then feeding them the information around culture because as a result of climate change like our sea levels are going to rise and they are rising which means we're going to lose a lot of coastlines, which means there's going to be a lot of sacred sites and history that just gets lost and people aren't aware of that. So I'm starting to try and bring that to people's attention and gauge their interest that way. So that's what we've kind of been working on. And it's like a slow burn um, because I I work full time and so does my best friend who helps me run it. Um, but it's also good because it means we're not going to burn ourselves out either. Yeah. And it'll just be like a progression, which is really exciting. Uh, definitely. I find that most people who kind of, especially when you're starting off in the ocean conservation field, it's, it's less about the money and it's more about the passion and the drive and the mission behind it. Um, and it seems like it's something really close to your heart. Therefore you're going <laughs> to, you're going to persevere yeah well like even right now like we we don't accept donations because 
most of the time there's like charities and like nonprofits that have just started and I'm like I don't I don't quite understand where that money goes Mm -hmm. so I don't like it's a non-profit like I I do this out of like the goodness of my heart like my mom helps me out because she knows I'm passionate about it and like she's aboriginal as well so we don't do it for money Mm -hmm. but eventually I would like to raise funds to then donate towards research and some research that my friends are doing in this sort of field and like that might be in like two years time or something but that's not what I'm driven by yeah um I would actually be very interested if you'd be open to sharing like something similar as to to what you share with the people who come to your cleanups and like the story you tell about uh, the traditional owners of the land because along with I think majority of the people who are listening to this podcast uh, we know very little about the aboriginal culture in general so if you could you know share anything you'd like that'd be great (laughs) (laughs) well so I host uh some of my cleanups down the road from where I live at a beach called Balmoral and that's in Mossman in Sydney so Mossman is quite I guess like an affluent suburb it's been around it's very old um and down at the beach there is a aboriginal cave with middens and it's literally just on the side of the road and there's like some old signage so I kind of bring that up saying there is culture here and it literally is on the coastline so if the sea levels did rise that that's gone so I kind of bring that up and when I do my acknowledgement, because there's so many conflicting resources about who the traditional owners of Balmoral are, um, I bring that up and I kind of say we're not 100% sure because unfortunately when the colonisers came, that mob kind of got wiped out and pushed back. So we've lost a lot of that knowledge already because um, there's like Camaragal, Boria Gaggle and one other that are around like the Mossman lower North Shore area mm-hmm. and I can't quite work out which ones were the ones based in Balmoral um I'm pretty sure like the Mossman Council website say Camaragal but then an Indigenous scholar says it's someone else so I you know it's hard to find like believe which resource so yeah you kind of I kind of bring that up and educate educate people that we've already lost so much and it'd be a shame to lose more um and then I also explain that back before colonizers came and I'm sure some communities still do it um like middens are in a way they're kind of like trash but um, Aboriginal people used it to determine what was the next food source they were going to eat. So, for example, there might have been uh, one species of fish, a shellfish, and then another fish on top of each other, like the bones. Mm-hmm. So then the next people that came to that area would be like, okay, well, I can't eat those because they've just been eaten. So they'll pick another, another three species and then leave that for the next group of people to come along. And then they'll be like, okay, well, I can't eat those six. So I'll pick another three. And it's kind of like a little cycle. So then, 
Yeah, so then they're not overeating certain species and then gives them time to replenish. Um, and then it was also kind of like a menu because you're like, oh, <laughs> what can I have for lunch today? These are what's in this area. Um, so I kind of like tell people stuff like that. Like myself, I'm still learning about history and culture because I grew up in Sydney and I grew up, I guess, I guess white in a way. I always grew up knowing I was Aboriginal and learning stuff about culture, but I also grew up privileged and I'm white passing until people meet my mum. They don't believe I'm Aboriginal. So, yeah, so it's called like walking in two worlds. So I still have a lot to learn, but I'm more than happy to share like what I already know with Mm -hmm. people. I really like this um, kind of idea of the not overeating of certain species and it just shows how um, like, you know, traditional owners of the land actually were stewards of the land. And that is one of the things I learned as well when um, I moved here to Karapa in Western Australia. So I live in an area where there's the oldest ever um, rock art, which dates back to 30,000 years. And um, it was all done by Aboriginal people and it's incredible. So I was welcomed to the country by um, some of the local mall. How, how do I, the local people? Yeah, local community. Local community. Um, and they, they told us the stories and it was absolutely incredible to, to just see how they were. The, the rock art was showing what species that lived here, they could identify every species of turtle based off how it was drawn and like whales and tur- uh, uh, fish as well that they'd be catching. And it was just incredible how this this knowledge was passed on in terms of the rock art but as you said as well when uh, the colonizers came they wiped out basically everyone who had um, the ability or that standing to actually create the rock art that now no more rock art is able to be created in this area because no one has the authority i'm not sure how it how it's called they haven't been taught it by by the elders therefore they can't just do it you know what I mean? Yeah, because sometimes a lot of knowledge you kind of have to work for in yeah. culture. So one way that it got explained to me as a kid mm-hmm. was it's kind of like a circle. So you have, say, males on the left-hand side at the beginning of the circle and females at the beginning of the right, top of the right-hand side of the circle, if that makes sense. So they'll kind of go in opposite directions around the circle, learning men and women's business. Mm -hmm. And then they get to a point where you start to learn the other genders business. Yeah. And that's pretty much when you become an elder at that point. But even then they'll keep a lot of the information or like traditions and stuff separate, Um, which yeah, is known as men's men and women's business. Yeah. Um, yeah, I noticed it here too, the way they were, when they were talking about um, any of the, like, male depictions on the statues, only the men were talking about it, while the women were talking about the women's business. I just found it very fascinating, and it just shows us how little we know or we get taught, 
and even after seven years um, in, in this country, I know so little about Aboriginal culture. It's kind of, it's, it's embarrassing in a way, and it's um, frustrating as well um, that we can't, well, that it's not better integrated in our education and in, in the upbringing of all Australians. Yeah, it is. And, like, I understand, like, it can be hard for many different reasons. So different mobs are going to have different practices and different Mm -hmm. traditions. So it's quite hard to just pick one to teach in the school system because they like to have the consistency. But it's also hard because a lot of people don't want to admit what happens in the past and they just think forgetting about it and moving forward is the way to go. But, like, the whole point of reconciliation is to kind of acknowledge what happened and work towards not letting it happen again because the only way to stop history repeating itself is to acknowledge and understand what happened so I think that's one of the biggest barriers definitely um just a little bit ago you briefly mentioned totems um so I was wondering if you could tell us more about what totems are and how like what what significance they have in culture? Yeah, so they're part of what's called the kinship system. So your kinship system is going to have like three different layers. So you have Moody, skin names, and totems. So totems will be will vary. So each mob is going to have their own. So my one as a Wiradjuri woman is a sand goanna. So that means I can't eat that animal. Um, so another mob could be a kangaroo. So they can't eat that kangaroo. And that is the kind of animal or thing you're sworn to protect. Mm-hmm. So it also kind of like acts as a conservation thing. So it means if everyone's totem is a kangaroo, well, no one's going to be eating kangaroos and they're going to run amok and they've got no population, con- oh no, yeah, no population control. Mm-hmm. So it kind of acts like that. And then ensures people are eating different things and that sort of stuff. But your totem could also be like running water or a river. And that's kind of what you have to protect and conserve. Um, But then you also have a family totem, a personal totem and a life stage totem. So generally your personal totem is given to you when you're born and it's based on what time where you were the day the weather so many different things and that kind of guides you and protects you and then you have like your family totem um don't think my family has one i don't think we've been given one um so that's acts in a similar way to like your mob's totem and then you have a life stage one and that can change throughout different parts of your life um so I've had like this affinity for turtles for quite yeah. some time. <laughs> and I spoke to auntie at uni and she said to me, I think that might be your personal one. Aww. So I've got a tattoo of one on me. But then I went to my mum's the other week and I was going through all my old jewellery that I've got at hers and it's all dolphins. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking that the turtle is one of my life stage totems because I remember as a kid, I was obsessed with dolphins so I mean you can see the theme of like marine life yeah 
coming through. Um, <laughs> so I think of them as like black stage totems and I still have like a strong connection with it. Um, but then again, like I'm, I'm not from country and I, I don't know, like I live in the city, but that's what I like to think myself. Mm-hmm. So to like further educate everyone that's listening, um, Torres Strait Islander people also have totems, but because it's like almost a completely different culture, they treat their totems a little bit differently. I don't know too much information, but from what my friends that are from the Torres Strait have told me is they actually eat their totems. Oh, okay. So, so it's quite different to what Aboriginal people do. Um, but when they eat them, they do it as part of like ceremony and they make sure they use every single part of the animal. So that's what triggered me into thinking, how am I going to say, like, how am I going to like investigate the effects of total population decline with those people? So eventually I think that would be a really nice thing that could get researched eventually, maybe not by me, but I think it's important because with what 99% of turtles up north are female how are those traditional like customs and ceremonies going to continue you know like yeah it's like that aboriginal people have the right to like legally we can hunt any animal or any species in australia regardless of its endangered status as long as it's used for cultural purposes. Yeah. But what's going to happen when they're not there anymore? Well, that's, that's the and scary thing because certain, certain animals, for example, the dugong, are very, very endangered. And um, it's not looking good for them because they're quite yeah. slow moving and they're hit by a lot of boats. Um, but they're still being hunted and eaten and you know used in ceremony uh which of course you know it is your country you know your animals and all that Mm -hmm. and i understand that but it's also that balance of conservation and since there are so many more people in australia now i think than they were i'm actually not sure what the numbers were but there's definitely different technologies now in terms of hunting right can mm. can Aboriginal people hunt with like I don't know like I don't know like spear guns and like that that kind of stuff or is it still traditional methods? No, I'm pretty sure we can still use spear guns because like I don't need to have a fishing license. Okay. To go fishing, like my cousin, he's got a boat. He goes out and he's just like, yep. Yeah. He's like, well, he goes, I bought a fishing license just because out of ease. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise I have to submit my proof of Aboriginality yeah. within like 24 hours or whatever. And he's just like, it's just easier just to whip it out. But like, okay. I don't really go fishing. So I'm like, I don't want to pay $70 or whatever it is for a <laughs> fishing license yeah. when I, when I legally don't need one. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I don't go fishing But it's either. also, <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know how to. <laughs> um, but it's also kind of like, at what point, like, does culture have to, you know, get affected by the fact that all these animals are becoming endangered. Like, I think it's quite slack that cultural practices are going to get affected 
because people are just negligent and, you know, don't really care. Like, it's kind of sad. And, like, Australia is still up there in terms of conservation in general and sustainability. Like, there are massive rules in terms of when you can fish for what species to make sure it's not their breeding season and there's seasons and there's minimum and maximum like catch sizes to ensure that there's enough time for them to kind of um regenerate. Yeah. so it's we're still very privileged here in terms of the amount of fish and creatures that are living uh, but if if we look at other countries where there is nothing in the oceans like that's the really scary thing of how there has been no no stewardship in the other areas and i think that I don't know, it's like when I was in Cambodia, there was just, there was nothing in the oceans. You know, I spent a lot of time diving and I didn't see a single fish bigger than 10 centimeters. And like, like that's so sad. And like, what about the people that are from there and that have their own cultural practices that could have been based on like the fish that were there? Like they've had to be impacted for that. And like, I just, I don't think that's fair that any any culture should have to suffer, no, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. And that's the thing, because if you look at, you know, most, most like traditional cultures in areas, they have had systems of conservation kind of built into the culture. You know, whether we're talking about the Native Americans or then like the, the tribes in South America or in Asia, you know, they had their own systems of making sure they don't overfish areas. Um, just like you were saying with the, with the cool little menu slash <laughs> telling <laughs> yeah. other people of what not to eat. Like this has existed for, you know, as long as humans have been around until the past, what, 1500 years where all of a sudden this, this commercialism and this boom of just demand and people just thinking they can, eat whatever and whenever and these massive ships which are just trawling the oceans and killing everything indiscriminately um that's Mm. that's the biggest issue in terms of sustainability Um, oh yeah there's so much we can learn from traditional cultures yes and people just turn a blind eye to it yeah and i don't know it definitely needs to come into the forefront and i think it would be very valuable the work that you're doing which is combining what we know from science with the the traditional knowledge because you know you are the people who lived on this land on this continent who have that um knowledge of its history and how to well it it was kept nice until recently you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah uh anyway before we get off um, (laughs) Uh, seriously, there's thunder here. This is crazy. Sorry, guys. I'm just really <laughs> shocked because where I live, it doesn't rain much. And this is the first rain I've experienced here um, in three months. So I'm just a little bit tripped out by the thunder outside. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I wanted to ask you, in terms of people who are listening or people who live in Australia, what kind of advice would you have or what are the things that you're trying to do on top of the education you do during your cleanups and then um, future projects um, to, to not lose the traditional culture and the knowledge and how it connects with the environment? I think 
from like a really basic level is to be aware of the different traditional owners on the land on which you live and work. Mm-hmm. Because in Sydney, there's like 29 different clan groups of the or a nation. And a lot of people, like I said, like we're not really quite sure who the traditional owners of like Mossman are. Um, I'm sure that knowledge probably somewhere. But um, just making sure that like you are kind of like aware that other people were here and this is this is where they lived um, is like a good step in the right direction and maybe trying to implement acknowledgement of countries when you're beginning things um, as well as like respecting like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, because not everything's just a stereotype um, and then learning from that is like using what you need so for example, when you go grocery shopping, just buy what you need. Don't overpurchase because then you're less likely to produce waste. Um, so that's a really like easy sort of thing from like culture that you can just put into everyday life. Um, but there's like a saying that I grew up with and it was called like care for country and country will care for you. Mm-hmm. So look after the environment and just like start making maybe not like wise choices, but start thinking about every day actions you have and what the repercussions are of those actions and more than just how it's affecting you, but maybe before and after it came into your hands, like plastic, for example, that's a really common one everyone's talking about is like the production of it and then how it is going to get put in the bin. Yeah. Um, so just being more aware I think is probably the best thing people can start doing from an early stage because that is something that has connected with culture and still is connected now, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think just being self-aware of what you're doing and, you know, like what your actions are is one of the best ways that you can start with that. Because a lot of people, like I've said before, don't, know much about traditional culture and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people so it's really hard to expect people just to take all this stuff on board and be okay with it and like remember it it's just easier to start with like the little things and yeah feed them in and if people wanted to learn more about the culture where is a good place to look or learn are there any documentaries or books or anything you can recommend for us to check out Check out NITV. It's like a branch of SBS. So one of my really good friends, she works at NITV and they do like reporting news. They have a radio station um, and they'll talk about some of those harder topics around like, for example, Aboriginal incarceration. Mm-hmm. So they, they will bring mob to light. And it's a really good starting point to get yourself into that sort of stuff. They also have a couple documentaries, which you can purchase, but not too expensive. Um, It's like a film club. And it's usually what people do for Reconciliation Week. Um, They'll hire out the movie for however many people and they show it in the workplace. So you can watch some of that stuff. yeah, I would start with, like, an ITV and SBS. I was going to say watch black comedy, but I don't think anyone's actually going to get that because it's <laughs> <laughs> quite, um, 
it's funny for Aboriginal people and it kind of gives a sense of like what we think is bad and good and like kind of makes takes the mickey out of it um and then if people are really interested you can contact your local aboriginal land councils so if you're like in new south wales there's a new south wales one and then sydney has a few um the main one is the sydney metropolitan land council um but yeah you can contact local aboriginal land councils or your local Aboriginal education consultative group. Um, there's, that's really the best place to start. And then from there, those places will give you more links and resources and invite you to events and stuff. So it's a good place to start. Um, I did want to ask, uh, when is Reconciliation Week? Reconciliation Week is from Oh my gosh, testing my memory. <laughs> it's in May. It's in May, okay. It's, it's from... I didn't even know that. so bad. No, but that's horrible. It's, I've been here for seven years. I've never even heard of it. Uh, it's from the 27th of May to the 3rd of June. It's off the top of my head. I really should know the dates. But yeah, <laughs> it's book ended by the 1967 referendum, mm-hmm. which was the 27th of May. And the Marbo decision on the 3rd of June. And then we also have NAIDOC week in the first week of July each year. Okay. Right. So put them in your calendar. <laughs> I, I will. All right, so my dog's going crazy now. Oi. Uh, but that's all the time we have today. So thank you, Maddie, so much for being here with me today. I'm going to have to edit this out. Okay, stop. Stop. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on this. And um, I'm sure we'll chat again. I'd love to know more once, you know, the project is up and going more. Hey, hey. Yeah. I'm sorry. They're not coming home, so. They can, they can tell that there's a storm. <laughs> Once again, thank you, Maddie, so much for being here with me today. I'm very excited to hear more about what Murian creates and the teachings you will incorporate to combine culture and science. So thank you for joining me here today. Thank you for all the knowledge you imparted on me. And hopefully people found this episode very interesting and educational. As always, you guys, really appreciate having you here. I love hearing from you guys, so please leave a message, send me a comment. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, all that jazz at Ocean Pancake or Vegan Diver Cat. And yeah, as always, thank you once again to Graham Mose, who is the mind behind the epic jams and beats you hear in this episode. He is in Brisbane, so if you guys ever want to go support him, see him live, he's got a CD, EP, and does sick live concerts. So yeah, go do that and I'll see you guys in next week's episode. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it.